The reading today is from Hebrews 1, verses 5 to 14. In the Church Bibles, it's on page 1201, I think. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels, ministering spirits, sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Let's pray again. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray now that as we um, come to your word together to sit under its authority, to sit under your word to us, that you, Lord Jesus, will fill our vision. Um, not just fill our minds with theology, but fill our, our vision with more of you uh, so that we might worship you and grow in loving you and grow in our desire to share you, our glorious Savior, with others. In your precious and powerful name, Lord Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. Thanks, Kath. The, the sermon could have gone for quite a long time there if you didn't pass me my notes that I just dropped. So uh, it was quite poignant this week when I, uh, I watched on the BBC as King Charles III in, I believe it was the blue drawing room in the palace, um, testified to uh, how precious his mother was to him and reflected on her life. And if you watched it, you'll have heard this part where right towards the end of that address, as he addresses the nation and in effect addresses his departed mother, he says these words, may flights of angels wing thee to thy rest. I knew that was familiar and I couldn't think where it was from. It's from Hamlet. So he, he stole those words from Hamlet to apply to his mother. May flights of angels wing thee to thy rest. And it got me wondering, well, it got me thinking about a lot of things. But one of the things that got me wondering was whether King Charles actually believes in angels. Was he just quoting those words because he likes Hamlet? because it was a sweet way to say something about his mother? Um, or does he have a real hope that his mother has gone to a truly better place? And does he actually believe in angels? Of course, it's very hard to know the answer to that question. But what's very clear as you read the letter to the Hebrews is that the writer to the Hebrews and his readers clearly shared an actual belief in angels. I'm going to say a bit more about what they are in a moment, but angels as in non-human spiritual beings. He clearly believes in them. The question arises as to why they're here in this passage and what he says about them. We've got two 
basic questions I want to try and answer from the passage this morning. First of all, what does he say about angels and why on earth does he start by talking about them? And secondly, and most importantly, of course, what does he say about Jesus, the Son of God? Now, obviously, those two questions are related, and I'll try and show how. But those are our two questions. What does he say about angels, and what does he say about Jesus? So first of all, what does he say about angels, and why are they here? Well, they're here in this part of Hebrews because they're part of his argument. He's making an argument. He's putting an argument together. He is preaching, as we saw last time, a sermon to these people who are being tempted to wander away from their faith. So angels are here as part of his sermon, telling them not to abandon their faith in Jesus and drift back to the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the old ways. He's saying, don't do that. Keep trusting in Jesus. If you remember, the strapline from last week was, whatever else you're tempted to trust, Jesus is better. Whatever else you're tempted to trust, Jesus is better. And in this section of Hebrews, when you get to verse 5, we know it's connected to the bit before, because if you look down at the text, it says, for, linking word, for, to which of the angels did God ever say? You may have noticed last week that angels were mentioned, and I didn't say anything about them. None of you pulled me up on it, but I'm making up for that this week. Because verse 4 says, he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So he's been showing the betterness, the supremacy of Jesus right from the start. And this next bit leads on from that, for to which of the angels did God ever say? But he's not just repeating himself, he's driving home his message, he's driving home his point. He's given his, his thesis statement, if you like, and now he's going to prove his thesis statement. And he does it by appealing to seven Old Testament texts, seven passages from the first part of your Bibles from the Old Testament, comparing Jesus to angels, or at least some of them compare Jesus to angels, some of them speak directly about Christ, but he's using those Old Testament passages to show who Jesus is, and that's why he's mentioning angels here. But you may be thinking, yeah, right, Matt, you still haven't really answered the question, though. Why angels? Why is he not using something or someone else to compare to Jesus? Why angels? Well, there are a few um, possible answers and, and a few definite answers to this. A possible answer is that the people he was writing to in the letter to the Hebrews had, for some reason, an unhealthy interest and too much of a focus on these amazing spiritual beings, angels. Possibly they'd been um, influenced by some sect and therefore they talked about and thought about angels all the time and maybe even were tempted to worship them. That's a possibility though I don't think you can get that directly from the text of Hebrews. They're definitely mentioned here because they're connected with the Old Covenant. He's going to go on to show them, look, don't go back to the old ways, the Old Covenant. Keep trusting in Jesus that the Old Covenant pointed forward to. And angels happen to be connected with the Old Covenant. If you jump ahead into chapter 2, it's cheating, but Dave won't mind, even though he's preaching from it next time. We read in verse 2 of chapter 2, for since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Did you catch that? The message spoken through angels. We're not given all the details in the Old Testament, but clearly the, the angels were involved in giving the Old Covenant to the people of Israel. So you see there's a link to his argument about the Old Covenant here, and that's one of the reasons he mentioned angels. If you want another proof of that, by the way, you can read in Galatians 3, verse 19, writing before this, Paul said, the law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. 
So it's wonderful how this preacher, as he writes his sermon down and sends it to this church, this group of Christians, interweaves all these different themes. Angels will keep cropping up and the old covenant will keep cropping up and they're connected. So there's a possible reason he mentions angels there, that they may have focused on angels too much. A definite reason that they're connected with the old covenant. But there's another big reason he mentions angels, which is probably obvious as you read this passage. And it's this. Angels are just a benchmark of what it means to be literally awesome. I mean, I know that's a word we overuse in our culture. We talk about an awesome film or an awesome pizza. That's not what the word means. Awesome means amazing, something that causes you, to, causes you to, to feel full of awe. And angels are awesome. And of course, he wants to show how great Jesus is. So what better awesome thing to compare Jesus to than angels? He clearly believes they're real, as we've already said. Verse 14 of chapter 1, are not angels, all angels, ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? They don't just occupy a fairy story book. These are real beings. He makes that clear. They're ministering spirits sent to serve us. A little bit more about that in a moment. But they are spirits. Do you notice that? Ministering spirits. So angels, whatever exactly they are, and they're real, um, are not physical like us. They don't have physical bodies like you and me. Although they often appear to people Throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we regularly read that an angel appears to someone. How do they see this invisible spiritual being? Well, because it's manifested itself to them in some way. It's shown itself. So angels don't have physical bodies, but they sometimes show themselves. There is a massive number of angels. I don't think we can say exactly how many, but when you look at Revelation chapter 5, it refers to there being 10,000 times 10,000 angels worshiping God in heaven. If my maths is right, that's 100 million angels. But I think that's probably a symbolic number. I don't think we should think there's exactly 100 million angels. The point is, there's loads of them. The point is also, it's, it's quite reasonable to believe that there are some here this morning and we can't see them, seeing as they serve God's people. They, they have, angels have wills. They, they can think, they can decide we know that because we're told in Scripture that some of them, many of them, rebelled against God. And they are the angels that we now call demons, the devil and his demons. Praise God, many of them didn't rebel against God, but they all have wills. They can decide things. They have emotions. Have you thought about this before? Angels having emotions? We're told by Peter in his first epistle that the things of salvation, the things that Jesus has done, angels long to look into those things. So, so there's a sense in which angels can't understand salvation in a way that we rescued human beings can understand salvation. They long to look into these things and understand them better. Angels have emotions. They long for things. They rejoice, Jesus said, over the repentance of one sinner. When you, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, when you, the day you put your faith in him, or maybe you can't point to the day, but the moment you put your faith in him, the angels in heaven rejoiced because they can see what's going on in this world and what Jesus is doing in his church. Angels act as messengers. Literally, the word angel means messenger. And often, uh, for example, in the Gospels, at the birth of Jesus, we read these passages at Christmas time, they announce things from God. They announce the coming of Christ. They worship God. If you look in Revelation 5 again, you'll see the angels there worshiping God. They have a protective, delivering role for Christians. 
We read in verse 14, there are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. We know that part of that is delivering God's people from trouble sometimes. For example, in Acts 12, you can read the story of Peter in prison and he's released by an angel. Love it, he's in prison and the, the angel has to whack him basically to say, wake up, I'm, I'm getting you out of prison. I'm busting you out. That's an angel does that. They are powerful beings, angels. Street, uh, unimaginably powerful beings. For example, you can read in 2 Kings 19, if you don't mind reading some hard and startling truths, that one angel, the angel of the Lord, because the people of God, Jerusalem, has been surrounded by the Assyrian army, one angel killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. So hopefully you agree with me by now, not only that the writer believes these angels are real, but these beings are, are literally awesome. They're messengers, servants, warriors, the whole thing rolled into one. They're not all-powerful and all-knowing and everywhere present like God is, but man, are they powerful, and boy, are they awesome. One of the reasons we know that is, what, what happens when uh, angels appear in Scripture? When they show themselves, normally what happens? Does the person who's been, the angel has been revealed to them, do they say, oh, fantastic, an angel. We talk like this sometimes. Oh, I'd love to meet an angel. Would you? When people in Scripture meet them, they're terrified. And angels normally have to say, do not be afraid. Do not fear. Do not be terrified. Because that's exactly what they are. Awesome as they are, they are terrifying. They are incomparably stronger and for now anyway, more exalted than us. But there's more to the story than that, and Dave's coming to that next week. They are real, they are awesome, and we as God's people should be grateful for them. But having said all that, what should be obvious by now is this passage is definitely not about angels. Awesome as they are. Of the seven Old Testament references I'm going to try and fly us through in a moment... Only two of them refer to angels at all. And even those two show how Jesus is far superior to them. The other five just speak of Jesus. And we should take note of the comparisons throughout these Old Testament texts between the angels and Jesus. This passage uses angels as a comparator to the infinitely greater awesomeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to get that image in our heads. If one came in this morning... If an, if an angel walked in there and showed himself this morning, you lot, well, actually, I'd be out the door before you probably, but you lot and I would be out that door and heading in that direction as quickly as we could carry ourselves. But if that angel, if that glorious archangel, were to, we were to see them before the Lord Jesus Christ, that glorious archangel would be on its face, worshipping, because Jesus is so much greater. So let's get to Jesus, shall we? He is, verse 4, superior to these awesome beings, to angels. And here, the writer then in verse 5, he starts to ramp up. He's, I mean, he said some incredible things about Jesus last week, didn't he? But, but what he says in this passage, if anything is even stronger, because some of the amazing things he strongly implied about Jesus last time, he's just coming out and saying it this time. He's starting to ramp up his argument. The tempo is building up. He's using rhetorical questions, for example. You know, you know a preacher's getting to his stride when he starts using rhetorical questions. Dave Lawless likes doing this. Watch out for his 
rhetorical questions, when he throws a question at you that you're not supposed to answer, but to get you thinking. The the preacher here does it. Verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say? Verse 13, to which of the angels did God ever say? He repeats words. Preachers tend to do that a lot as well, don't they? Verses 5 and 6, he repeats the phrase, and again, and again. He's building up his tempo. He's ramping up to prove what he's already been saying. He's driving it home. Old Testament quote after Old Testament quote. Incidentally, and this is an incidental thing, but it's such an important point for us here this morning. Do you note that all the way through this passage, he's assuming that what the Old Testament says, God says. He keeps saying, using the word say or says, all the way through this passage, whenever he quotes the Old Testament, he speaks of God and says, he says, he says, he says. The writer knows that when you read the Bible, that is God speaking. This is not just a book about God, telling us wonderful things about him. This isn't a book, some of which is from God. This is God speaking to us this morning. And he keeps speaking to us through his Old Testament words, showing us who Jesus is. One other thing I need to say, just before we get into these seven Old Testament passages quickly, is this. That to understand what he's doing here correctly, you need to understand what he was doing right at the start, which is showing that Jesus is better than anyone and anything, and what he's about to do in chapter 2. So again, I know I'm pinching a little bit of Dave's territory here, but just quickly to show what he's building up to, the start of chapter 2 He says, after speaking about angels and Jesus being superior to them, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, linking word again, to what we've heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received is just punishment, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You see the flow? He's starting out by saying Jesus is awesome. He's carrying on saying how awesome Jesus is. And he's saying this great salvation we have is because we have such an awesome Savior. He can only warn them not to slide away from this great salvation because Jesus is such a great Savior. So he shows the greatness of that salvation by giving them even more of the greatness of Jesus. And what he says is breathtaking. As I say, some of the things that were strongly implied last time he comes out and says them. There is no room, you see. There's no room in this passage. There's no room anywhere in the Bible for a Jesus who is merely a man. Just a wise sage or a guru. If this is what Jesus Christ is like, then the writer's chapter 2 argument that there is no other salvation is clearly proved. If this is who Jesus is, there cannot possibly be any other way to be saved. Or to use the words that the writer used in the first part of chapter 1, to be purified. To be able to stand in the presence of the majesty in heaven. There, is, there can be no other way if this is who Jesus is. Absolutely no other way. So, what does he quote to prove it? Psalm 2, first start, verse 7. You remember that Dave preached on this recently. You are my son, today I have become your father. And Or again, and then he quotes 2 Samuel chapter 7, I will be his father and he will be my son. So you've got the first two Old Testament passages in verse 5 there. Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7, 14. Psalm 2, as Dave pointed out to us recently, is the, the, the Davidic king. The king in David's line who is God's son. 
so that the kings of Israel were called God's sons with a small s. But the psalm is clearly pointing beyond the king as the son of God to the son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he keeps doing in this passage, you see, the, the writer to the Hebrews. He keeps showing that when you read many of these Old Testament texts, they work at two levels or two horizons. Yes, initially they're speaking of David as the king and all his descendants. But beyond them, these passages are speaking of the king of kings who is to come, who will also be descended from David. So he's speaking there of the fact that Jesus is the one of Psalm 2, and he is also the son who will reign on David's throne, whom God promised to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He said, I'm going to build a house for you. Your son will reign on the throne. I'm going to bless him. And of course, that's talking about Solomon. But beyond Solomon, it's saying things that couldn't possibly be true of Solomon. Because it says in Psalm in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that this son of David is going to reign on David's throne. Do you know for how, do you know for how long? Seth got at the back end of the front forever. Well, Solomon wasn't going to do. No king of Israel would. There isn't a king of Israel on the throne of Israel this morning. It's Jesus because he's the eternal son of God. That's what those two passages in chapter 5 show. You might be thinking at this point, hopefully, if you're still with me and you're concentrating, hang on, are you saying he's the eternal son of God? But it says there in verse 5, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or in the ESV and other literal versions, today I have begotten you. And it says in verse 6, I might as well jump ahead to that for a second, and again when God brings his firstborn into the world. That could sound like there was a time when Jesus, the son of God, didn't exist, and now he does. Is that what he's saying? Absolutely not. Again, we've got to read these things in context. And in the context of Psalm 2, for example... When the psalmist says, today I've become your father, today I've begotten you. What's he talking about when he talks to the Davidic king? He's talking about his coronation. He's not saying, today on your enthronement day, I'm bringing you into being. He already existed. He's saying, today, little son of God, king of Israel, today I've begotten you because in the, the sight of the whole world and the whole of Israel, I am enthroning you as king. So how does that apply to Jesus? Much later, in exactly the same way. Jesus was begotten as the Son of God in the sense that in his resurrection and ascension, he was declared with power to be the Son of God. You can read about that in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. And when it speaks of him being the firstborn in verse 6, it doesn't mean, well, it, of course, Jesus was born as a human being 2,000 years ago. But it's not speaking of his physical birth. It's speaking of him being the firstborn, as in the supreme, the one of premier rank. That's what these verses mean. So all these verses are showing that he is the promised one of the Old Testament, the promised son of David, descended from David, whom God has installed and declared to be king through his resurrection from the dead. So that's verse 5 in Psalm 2 and 1 Samuel chapter 7. What else has he got to say? Well, the third quote from the Old Testament we find in verse 6, and it's from Deuteronomy 32. And again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Let all God's angels worship him. As we said, if that great archangel were here this morning, we'd be terrified, but that great archangel and all the heavenly beings bow before the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is um, despised and rejected by most of the world in every generation, 
He is the one before whom all the angels bow. And this is why the writer in verse 6 quotes Deuteronomy 32. And then in verse 7, we get to Psalm 104, the fourth Old Testament quote. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angel spirits and his servants flames of fire. He's driving home the point there that angels, awesome as they are, are servants only. Servants of God primarily, but also because they serve God, they serve God's people as we see there in verse 14. And in case they still weren't getting it, in case they still aren't making the massive points he's making about the Lord Jesus Christ, then verses 8 to 9, in his fifth quote from the Old Testament, we get to Psalm 45. But about the Son, he says, your throne, listen to these words now, this is quite clearly and directly speaking of Jesus, the carpenter, from Nazareth. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He calls Jesus God. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. This is one of those places in the New Testament, there are several, where Jesus is directly called God with the Greek word theos, from which we get theology. I just love the way that the writer of the Hebrews does this. He uses Psalm 45. It's, it's, it's a wedding psalm. Let me just read some of the verses to you. This is, this is on, for for the, the king's wedding, this is. My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I res, recite my verses for the king. My, ten, my tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most excellent of men. He's bigging the king up on his wedding day in front of his bride. You are the most excellent of men and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your side, you mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. Language is getting a bit stronger, isn't it? In your majesty, ride forth victoriously in the cause of humility. Truth, justice, let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Still addressing the king of Israel, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. It's like, I read that, what on earth is the psalmist thinking? He's gone completely overboard, completely OTT. This isn't just a bit of poetic license, a bit of hyperbole. He's gone far too far. He's speaking of the king on his wedding day and says in verse 6, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And it's amazing when you read that the scholars try and say here, well, yeah, you know, it is a bit of hyperbole. He's been deliberately over the top because the king was connected with God's rule, and therefore the God, uh, the king could be referred to in these circumstances poetically as God. And I, I suppose there's an element of truth to that. But any ordinary Israelite and any ordinary Christian today reading those words is surely going to think, how on earth can you jump from you being a glorious king to calling you the king of Israel God? How does that work? And the answer is, it doesn't work. Unless this is a case of, in the words of Derek Kidner, the Old Testament scholar, the Old Testament bursting its banks to demand more than human fulfillment. In the psalm, the king is called God because it is speaking past him and speaking of the one 
who would become the king of Israel in David's line and who would be actually, literally, in every sense, the God the Father is God, God. You see that the tragedy of liberal Christianity, I put that in inverted commas because truly full-on liberal Christianity isn't Christianity at all or some of the so-called Christian cults and other belief systems that say that Jesus is uh, an important person and is an amazing person and is a prophet, but stop there. Because they are blind to the clear supremacy of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who is God. Christians worship one God who is mysteriously Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is God. And without this Jesus, you see, the Jesus of Hebrews chapter 1, there is no Christianity, there is no gospel, there is no salvation. And you will, you will be able to hear things, listen to podcasts, read books, talk to friends maybe who will say, oh yeah, but come on, you need to, to soften it a bit. You need to not be so black and white. Is it really important to believe that Jesus Christ is literally God? And the answer that God gives in his word is yes, yes, a thousand times yes, because there is no salvation without that. There is no Christianity, there is no gospel, no salvation without Jesus being like this. Conversely, if this is who he is, how can there be any other way to be saved? Do you remember those words from chapter 2 that I read earlier? Verse 3 how shall we escape if we ignore, ignore so great a salvation? You see the point? The writer of the Hebrews is not saying to these professing Christians who are tempted to wander away, look, if you wander away, that's a real shame because we'll miss you in church. And you're missing out with the joy of the Christian life. But do you know what? You might be okay anyway because there might be some backdoor into being saved and being in God's kingdom forever one day. He's not saying that. He's saying, how are you going to escape if you neglect so great a salvation? There is no other way. If God has given his one and only son to live a perfect life and to die horrendous death on the cross in the place of sinners, if that's what he's done, how can anybody think there's any other way? There isn't. This is why people need to hear about Jesus. This is why my neighbors either side of me and the people I bump into every day need to hear about Jesus because he offers a great salvation, which is the only salvation there is. So that's the gist of what he's saying. But I've almost got to the end of my sermon, but I can't finish because he hasn't quite got to the end of this bit of a sermon. Don't you love it when preachers do that? Just when you think they're wrapping up, they've got another bit. He hasn't quite finished this section yet because he's got his sixth quote in verse 13, which is from Psalm 110, the most popular psalm in the New Testament and very popular in Hebrews as well, in which the writer says, or God says through the writer, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That psalm is talking to someone who is the king of Israel and also amazingly seems to be a priest as well and a warrior as well. Sound like anybody else? Do you know? He's speaking to the king of Israel and says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He's explicitly identified Jesus as God. He said some God-like things about him. Incidentally, he's shown, sorry, I forgot this bit, Preachers do this too, they loop back, don't they? When he quotes Psalm 102 in verse 10, he's speaking of Jesus being the one who laid the foundations of the earth and he compares Jesus to the creation he's made that will one day wear out and says, your years will never end. Jesus is unchanging. 
What a great week to hear that in the light of a, of a beloved sovereign who's died, who was renowned for being steadfast and reliable and faithful, imperfect as she was. She was renowned for those things. And in a very, very limited and pale way, she points forward to the unchanging King Jesus, who will literally never change. If you have trusted in him, you will not be put to shame because he will never change. Anyway, sorry, back to Psalm 110 and verse 13. What's the writer saying about Jesus there by quoting Psalm 110? Well, he's saying there will be a day when Jesus returns and his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. So those who are the enemies of God, those who are the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ, will one day be judged by him. You see that theme of judgment in Psalm 102 in verse 10 there as well. They will be judged by him. They will be defeated by him because Jesus will be victorious. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, and warrior too. And he is returning one day to judge the world. I think it's significant that he closes that section. I wanted to close with it to say something that I know I've said so many times in this place. Um, I, well, I'm not going to apologize, actually. I will probably say it many more times in the future if God spares me. This Jesus is not an entry in a theological text. This Jesus isn't someone from a fairy story. This is, Jesus isn't somebody that Christians have dreamed up so they can whistle in the dark and feel better about life when it's hard. This Jesus is real and seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven and he is coming back one day. He's sat at God's right hand now and he's coming back one day when God will make his enemies a footstool for his feet. And Jesus loves his enemies. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that all of us are God's enemies, the enemies of Jesus, because we don't love him with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, because we do reject him, because we live our lives our own way, not his way. We are his enemies. Every single one of us, make no mistake about that. But Jesus, God, loves his enemies. That's why Jesus came to offer up those hands that flung stars into space on a cruel Roman cross so that you and I could become the friends of God. Praise God that this Jesus loves his enemies. He will judge you and me on the day he returns. And we will be separated from his presence forever unless we put our trust and our faith in him. And then the promise is glorious. And if you want to know more about the promise, the things that Christians have to look forward to, well, read the rest of Hebrews. And we come into it in the weeks ahead. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you um, that all of Scripture speaks of you. Thank you that you said this to your disciples, or thank you that to the, the disciples on the Emmaus Road, you, you unfolded how the Old Testament spoke of you. We read that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, you explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning yourself. Thank you so much, Lord, for your precious word. May it do its work in our minds and hearts this morning to cause us to fall on our faces in worship of you, the King of kings, before whom the mightiest archangel and cherub and seraph bows. May we bow and worship. May every heart here see this morning, Lord, that they are by nature your enemies, but that you love your enemies, which is why you sent Jesus to die on that cruel cross. And may every heart here turn to you this morning, I pray, and trust in you as their prophet, priest, king, saviour, the one who is infinitely greater than angels. Thank you for showing yourself to us through your word this morning, Lord Jesus. Amen.
I stand and sing some songs.